0: You're listening to The Poker Zoo, episode 25. Welcome back to The Poker Zoo. Poker we need to have a serious talk persuadio. Persuadio. Welcome back to another riveting episode of the poker Zoo if you hate my intros you're gonna have to let me know otherwise I'm going to keep playing. this podcast is designed by Persuadio for his own coaching students friends of his anyone else who would like to listen in and of course members of the back room a private poker community you can find us at perswadio.nl I've been playing with the website a bit this week so if you have trouble getting in let us know. We should now redirect you to the secure version of the site, which Google is supposed to like. Speaking of likes, Manus Newer left us a very nice rating and review on iTunes, so thank you, Manus. This week's episode is another in the line of returning guests, so enjoy the interview.
1: Well, welcome back to the zoo. We continue this week to check in with a few players and coaches who were previously on the podcast to see what's new and where they're at. And in fact, I think no guess could be more timely than today's, as the poker world was given some fairly shocking news. And I'm not talking about some dumb hand at the WSOP or a Twitter feud. I'm talking about the announcement that scientists have created a bot that has apparently defeated extremely strong opposition in multi-way games, for better or worse, and with far less computing power than Libratus used for a heads up. So here to talk about Pluribus and some other things is GTO coach and expert Alvin Lau. Welcome back, Alvin.
2: What's going on, man? How are you doing?
1: Oh, too many things. But we're, we're going to focus on the, <laughs> okay. the, the, the big bad computers. Well, it wasn't bad news to you because when the news came out and you saw the database, you said that Christmas had come early. Let's oh, start man. with what did you mean by that? So...
2: I was super excited to see that there was a multi-way bot, because essentially that is going to be the holy grail of poker, especially now because uh, at the high stakes and at least online, there is no such thing as heads-up play because those are indeed solver-dominated games. And so it's actually kind of interesting now to see that there is a multi-way solver that can kind of beat players in real time. And it's probably only a matter of time before that, reaches like zoom 500 so it's uh it's going to be kind of interesting to see what direction poker goes toward from here but also it was really interesting because it involved a lot of hands between elite players playing against what they thought was gto right i guess they would make that assumption playing against pluribus and just a bunch of hands from elite players just wailing on each other, and those were also super exciting to look at. And so that's not really, uh, you know, pluribus focus, but it's, you know, it's, it's still part of the Pluribus experiment and still really good information to look at.
1: Yeah, let's sort of lead in with that. They gave us a list, right, of who the players were. We don't have to go through all of them, but you were sure. interested in a few particularly, right?
2: Yeah, so I think it's, uh, like, Jason Less. Mm-hmm. Wasn't he part of, I think, like, the upswing guys who... Took on Labradus, right?
1: Indeed, yes.
2: Um, and then is it Doug Kim? Maybe is part also part of that group. And then I also want to say Nick Petrangelo is a I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, so forgive me. Um, is like a super high stakes crusher from Upswing. And then Linus Love, who is the you know the quiet Doom Lord and boss of poker right now, or that's or at least we all assume. But you know I guess uh, the money bags don't lie, right? Like balls don't lie.
1: Well, you've certainly. Not to get too far off the topic, you've certainly made a case recently, right? You've covered some of his hands, where he comes off looking awfully sharp in some live games.
2: Yeah, so it's it's really interesting, because Linus seems to be willing to go into these minority lines that a solver might suggest that you only do like 5 to 12% of the time that are going to be kind of neutral EV in order to lead his opponent into kind of murky territory. I think a really good example of this, not from the poker world, actually, is Magnus Carlsen, who just thinks that he's such a better player than everyone else that if he just takes you into some never-before-analyzed situation, he's just going to be able to outplay you because uh, his holistic, fundamental understanding of chess is just better than yours. And so I think that's something that Linus can do is that very often he can mix between two different lines in a uh, that are like Similar in EV, but always really know where he is in the hand, and then drag you into places where you might not be able to recognize where you are. And I think that's a skill that I'm not sure if I've recognized as clearly from other players. Obviously, Linus is a very well-known player, so a lot of his work is dissected very aggressively. Right, that's something that I think that he's kind of leading the pack in doing, especially you know with like leading uh, in three bet pots, four bet pots, leading in the turn in some weird spots. I think I've done videos about him leading in flops positions where he should not lead at all theoretically, and well, he lost that hand, but you know, he he does some <laughs> weird stuff, and it's it's pretty interesting to see someone who is so theoretically gifted being willing to take some very slight lost leaders in some positions in order to you know uh, coerce more mistakes from his opponents, and I think that's really where poker is going to be kind of going once players really understand optimal at, at that extraordinarily high level.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a lot of meat on the bone there, as well as that <laughs> rather, uh, that's a beautiful comparison, I think, actually, between what Carlson does and what Linus apparently does, and, and, and apparently what what I assume a lot of these very best players are doing. I mean, I can't explain why OTB Red Baron is like on top forever, right? He has to be ahead, always yeah. taking risks, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. So, and you know, and like recently, I think there was even a Reddit thread of someone who was like a 200 or maybe like a 400 no limit online player. And he was releasing like all of the research that he had done on GTO. And it was really interesting because he had definitely come to some conclusions that I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he was leaving poker because he was like frustrated that he wasn't winning enough. But I was like, man, even guys who are at like the mid stakes are doing this wild analysis that high stakes players might intuitively kind of incorporate into their game or might accidentally incorporate because they understand, like, you know, the, what the strategy kind of looks like. But, you know, he was talking about some, like, concepts like uh, you should be check-raising the river with a value range that is worse than 50% when called on the river. And, uh, and, like, whatever his justifications were. I actually don't know if those are right, but if they are right, they actually are pretty interesting and Probably are very useful in practical play in a couple couple spots.
1: So yeah, I saw that thread, although I, I didn't I didn't look at it very carefully. and I saw that conclusion. <laughs> so it's was like okay, it, it seems to be a little. I don't want to go down that road too far, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, certainly it was a compelling, and and you could hear the frustration and like in in his writing than uh, that, which is amazing. <laughs> I don't know what else to say there. Sure, sure. Uh, but let's back up, if only for the sake of the listener. I'm going to call up, if I can, the actual pluribus chart, his graph in Poker Tracker. Sure, okay. Have you looked at that? I mean, I don't, I'm don't. Yeah, i not a graph like... interpreter, but maybe you could comment on the big picture here.
2: Yeah, so he kind of gets crushed. At first, he seems <laughs> to be crushing everyone, and he goes on like a negative 15 buy and downswing. And basically, he just calls at a couple spots where the opponent just shoves the nuts. I have difficulty commenting on what the researchers mean when they talk about their variance reduction techniques, right? I assume that Pluribus has whatever calling strategy that assumes, that itself assumes, that villains' shoving range is going to be effective nuts-heavy, right? Because that's how you should be composing shoving ranges in a lot of these kind of spots. So if it still calls in that spot, I, you know, I, I don't know if that's good or bad. I honestly just don't know about the kind of underlying uh, definition of what, how Pluribus and uh, its scientific team deem success and failure there. But from just a hand-to-hand standpoint, watching it play and kind of inferring the underlying conclusions that it is making is wildly impressive, right? I think there's going to some, be some spots where, Pluribus really goes crazy in spots where it should be taking super minority lines. So I think I posted a video where at the very end uh Pluribus calls down with some kind of hero call that it should be only make be making like 0.5% of the time in its own database. And that actually should be a spot then after it solves down in uh, like to zero or as close to zero it can get, that'll probably be actually be a zero percent maneuver, right? So I think if Plurbus Maybe even just has some kind of built-in uh, recognition of realizing, hey, when I reach this threshold of minimal action, that probably means that I'm going to be solving towards zero, right? And so it never makes these kind of, like, crazy hero calls that are generally going to be negative EV. It's hard to, yeah. it's <laughs> hard to tell where, where, it's, where it's going. But, but yeah, but looking at how it plays, like, from a big picture, it's incredibly impressive. Right? like I think it if you just said oh these are a really strong players hands I'd be like yeah this guy's insane right and just plays really 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 well so
1: yeah and if I don't know I'll let you comment on this but the few hands that I looked at it really seemed to play its range really well like better and more disciplined than a human normally does and in that three3 three hand that you're talking about he makes the Minority call there was I wouldn't want to ask you about this. You mentioned something about there being Sort of sub branches where that call becomes better. What did you mean by that
2: in the video? You mean
1: Oh, well, I think you commented on on a YouTube comment because you obviously demonstrated, at least with the you know, there's always the garbage in, garbage out aspect of sure our ranges being wrong. You know,
2: yeah, so you know, I also think that um, this uh, when I actually was commenting the video, I was getting some spots where it was probably going to be a minority call where I couldn't solve down to zero percent. I could only solve down to like point. Zero, zero, 001 or something like that. And if it did solve out down to zero, it might just fold those hands as well. So that actually might be go- is what is happening in my own solutions, that there are spots where, uh, you know, when it says call 4 or 5% of the time, I probably should just never call there. So I think that actually is going to be correct in both theory and practice.
1: So. Okay. Uh, so we're getting to some hands now, but first I'll just make one last comment on this graph. I think one of my students <clears throat> put together uh, or added the all-in adjusted EV line. And yes, indeed, Pluribus appeared to be running a bit poorly, but it didn't correct all of this. So there's hope for you humans yet. <laughs> sure. All right, well, we've gotten some hands, and I know you've looked at a lot of hands. Why don't you tell us about some and, and what you learned from them?
2: Well, rather than talking about hands, I kind of let's talk about how maybe Pluribus approached the game differently.
1: Right? Oh, even better.
2: So first off, there's you can just tell from the pre-flop stats that there is a marked difference in talent between the players, right? Mm. So one of the first things I notice is that one of the players does not really three bet or, uh, I'm sorry, does not really cold call. The only three bets are fold except when he's on the button and in the big blind. And that is definitely something that is a symptom of playing in like a medium or higher rake game. But, In the Pluribus example or Pluribus experiment, most people were like min-raising, xing in a no-rake environment. And so in a no-rake environment, that makes cold calling a lot more attractive. And so I think that he really didn't take that into account. And so you could definitely just look at the preflop stats and see, wow, some of these people really took the structure into account very uh, deeply, and then some of these people did not. And in my opinion, the people who did short-term variance, but it seems to me the people who did take that into account did very well, and the people who didn't didn't. So, I'd be kind of interested in taking, uh, seeing if I could like take out all of the hands not played against Pluribus, just to see what like how the humans did against each other. I probably should do that for some you know some other analysis later on. But uh, 10k hands, you know, too small of a sample, anyways. So what Pluribus did way differently than humans did is that, you know, traditionally humans have like kind of a narrow uh, narrow cold calling range, especially when there's rake and then there's 3-bet increases as they approach the button. Seems very standard and very normal. That's probably fine at like 2-5 or whatever. But in a game where there's no rake, I found that Pluribus, it's 3-bet slightly increased as it approached the button, so like you know, versus under the gun, is like 5%, then it goes to 6 and as it approaches the button, it goes to, like, near 7%. But its cold-calling frequency expanded extremely, extremely massively. So normally, right, it's your it's your 3-bet uh, that has kind of exponential growth as you approaches the button, but here it seems to be that the cold-calling frequency was making that exponential progression while the 3-betting one was a lot more linear. I thought that was really interesting, and then it definitely changed how post-flop should be played when you are facing this GTO range because uh, I'll just be honest uh, (laughs) I was a little annoyed because some of the GTO ranges that uh, Pluribus recommends flatting are some of the ones that like me and my friends use and so I'm like oh god like people are realizing what some of the the good good tricks are are going to be and they're going to realize what some of the spots they are not going to be able to bet against us but for the most part one of the really interesting things is if Pluribus flats you with a GTO range, no matter what, no matter what position you are in, you pretty much cannot simplify post flop against it, which is one of the most useful things about being extraordinarily GTO in that position.
1: So those, that's interesting. Are Pluribus's pre flop decisions somewhat reflecting, say, the the Monker solver packages or? How do you arrive at these? what would be for most players very difficult cold calls in a 6-max game?
2: Okay, so first off, all pre-flop solutions from what I've seen so far disagree with each other, even professionally bought ones. So, like, if you look at I don't even know what the website is, and I don't want to shout them out. But uh, if you look at what their their cold-calling recommendations are going to be in a no-rake game versus Pluribus, they're going to be completely different. Similarly, if you look at the GTO ranges that were recommended by the guy who just released his research on Reddit, Pluribus completely disagrees in a no-rake scenario, right? So very often, a lot of the... Yeah, so for computing power, very often a lot of these ranges exclude cold 3 bets cold 4 bet ah they might include cold 4 bets but like they yeah they discount cold calling 3 bets and cold calling 4 bets for the sake of simplicity which i don't know how dramatically changes the tree but the results that they give are extremely different than pluribus so i don't you know i don't know what to say there one thing that i was kind of doing in my own analysis is just not only looking at pluribus but also adding in the three humans that i thought were the strongest and kind of understood the pre-flop game the the best, both from looking at the hands and looking at the statistics and kind of, like, combining what their ranges look like. And to be honest, I found that the players who, and again, sample sizes, um, but the players who I thought were the strongest also played the most similarly to Pluribus, which in my mind is not a coincidence. It's probably indicative that they are just using much better pre-flop solutions than are commercially available right now.
1: Okay. And then the follow up question to that is, you know, when you don't have access to these very specific scenarios, like what are some of the principles? I mean, because you can actually think out and you can certainly observe why Monker Solver does what it does. What are some of the principles that, say, a listener, a lower stakes listener, could use in thinking about what, say, Pluribus is doing here in terms of cold calling?
2: In almost kind of every purely GTO formation, Pluribus is always going to have board coverage and randomization, right? Like, mm. that's kind of the two most important things that the computer really cares about. And so because it has those two things in Symphony, when it is in position to you, you just have to play, like, really, really perfectly using a mixed strategy. It usually means that Pluribus' actual flatting range includes... Some combinations of pocket queens, ace, king, usually hands like ace-jack are a flat, but ace-ten are three-bet which is really interesting, and I'm not really sure how it arrives at that conclusion, but very distinctly it prefers 3-betting ace-10 and flatting ace-jack, and that's actually something that the humans also are doing as well. And again, because so many of these decisions mirror pluribus, it again makes me think this cannot be coincidence, it must be that they are doing some kind of deeper analysis than what we are doing. Well, until now, because now we can see all this analysis. Yeah, But I think that for the players who are not playing, again, in no-rake games, many of these strategies are completely worthless for example Monker solver in a very high rate environment verifies that yeah cold calling kind of sucks you should just be three betting you know like in the small blind i don't think Monker solver ever has a small blind cold calling range in a high rate game so if you're playing in a home game with no rake then these are all great right <laughs> if you're playing in a casino these are probably horrendous right if you're playing on stars again these are all probably, again really hor- probably horrendous
1: right so well, I guess uh, yes. I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of a specific scenario, and it's one that will, the players who will be interested in this, especially those who move, you know, sort of seamlessly from live to online or, and back and forth, is that time games are often some of the best games you'll, you'll play in. Sure. And the, rake, the rake will be low and the stacks will be deep. <clears throat> but there's, in these games, there's just a lot of calling. Like, even very big games seem to play very passively. And if, if what you're saying is true, having some protection flatting these very strong hands occasionally, 3-betting Ace-10 because it's not strong enough to flat, is certainly a compelling idea for someone to think about.
2: Yeah, if you're playing at whatever stakes, you know, 100-200 and the time rake is, you know, $40, $50 an hour, I, mean, I have no idea if that is is a reasonable time to fee. I mean, like, the rake seems so disproportionately low to the rest of the stakes that, yeah, you probably should be playing extremely passively pre-flop. I think that is correct. So, Fair enough. Well, tell us
1: what else. What else have you observed? What, which, what has... which also
2: probably, doesn't that make live at the bike? I don't know. Is there a rake in the, in the high stakes live at the bike games? I actually don't know.
1: Uh that's a good question. I believe there is. Um I don't okay. think you I don't think you, I don't think you get on there for free. <laughs>
2: okay, cuz those games are a little too passive probably. I I don't know, but some of those spots might be a little too passive and the pluribus might disagree because of the rake structure et cetera. Et cetera. But
1: okay. Well, yeah. I mean a little detail not to get too far and it's a yeah. little detail <laughs> about about that stuff. When they ask you on on live at the bike just for those of you who are going to do this. They ask you specifically are you an action player, <laughs> which is which is very amusing? Um, so they're they're biased. They're trying. They're trying everything they can do to make the games loose. And sure,
2: oh and yeah, sure, and... sure. Yeah, that's why he's the people's champion. That's right. <laughs> right, man. I love Dustin. He's the best. Shout out to Dustin if you can hear this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, back to the evil computers. Um, tell us more. Talk talk to me, Alvin, about what you saw.
2: Okay, let's. I have the, I've created a little list of some of the things that Pluribus does that I thought were pretty interesting. So first off, gen, you know, having the genuine board coverage in position, I think is, is pretty impressive, right? The fact that it can just calculate how to play a polarized uh, three betting range and then having a balanced flatting range is, is really good. Pluribus doesn't simplify Nor do players simplify against Pluribus. And that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, uh, whoever is Linus Love, right? I would assume that, you know, he knows that Pluribus is going to play pretty perfectly against your one third or one quarter bet. And there's not really that kind of need to do that. And instead it's going to be a little more lucrative to try to actually go for like whatever perfect strategy against it. Um, And so Pluribus in turn, doesn't do any simplification itself. It usually bets 50% or more because it chooses a polarized strategy, even though there are a couple situations where I have seen it bet uh, a quarter of the pot, uh, but it seems to be pretty rare. I don't know if that's just going to be generally a minority line, and I'm not really... You know, the sample size is not large enough for me to kind of deduce what it's doing there. But it seems pretty notable that generally is going for the polarized big bet strategy rather than going for, you know, the, the small bet strategy, except for some very notable esoteric exceptions. Also, Pluribus love to pick basically like one quote unquote like standardized bet size and then vary from it a little bit bigger and a little bit smaller. So, for example, it normally would 3-bet to, like, 3.25 to 3.5x in position. Sometimes, however, it would make it 225 in position, and one time I saw it make it 5x in position, uh, and the hands didn't really make sense for either one of those, so I was just like, I don't know what's really really? going on. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Another time, the button made it 2.2, Pluribus made it, like, 2.5 2.5x from there so like a little bit more than a min raise and then it two it bet 200% on the flop and it and so it had king queen suited there and the flop was king high So it's kind of hard to tell what's going on there, right? King-queen suited seems to be a hand that I guess makes a lot of sense to, like, min 3-bet to get, like, whatever kind of value. And then, you know, after your opponent calls with a range that you dominate with whatever your min-raising range is there, then on a king-high flop, you must be having all of the huge advantages, and so you can just, like, start bombing that flop. So I don't know if he bombs that flop because he has king-queen, if he just wants to bomb that flop when he min-raises it and then makes it 200, Right? Hard to tell what's going on there, but it knows something that we don't. Also, I have no idea how it's balancing its like 2.5x out of position raise. I assume it's just pretty strong and it's kind of curious to see what it does there. Again, like occasionally just making it 5x out of or 5x in position with like I think King 3 suited. I was just like, ah, I just don't know what's going on here. Right? I assume King 3 suited is going to be like a very minority play and that's like mostly aces. But there's also a big problem with making it 5x preflop with a hand that blocks your opponent's calling range, right? So,
1: that is just let's just stop there for a second. I mean, bet sizing is such an important part of poker, and I have to feel for the human players having to adjust onto the fly to these things.
2: I mean, yeah, this, so that <laughs> was something that was really cool is that on a lot of very, very similar board textures, Pluribus would just you know, pick a variety of pet sizes with what seem to be equivalent hands. Again, right, the huge sample size issues. It's very hard for me to say if, you know, Ace-10-5 and Ace-Jack-5 are that similar in pluribus size, you know what I mean, depending on whatever its ranges are. It basically just seemed to perfectly mix multiple sizings against you uh, and just not, you know, and just not really care what you did in a lot of its at least aggressive spots.
1: Right. To actually zoom out again... It's not. We're playing multiway. Explain what you think about how it does this. I mean, it's how it it plays multiway. Yeah, because you know, it's one thing to to assign these equilibriums, but we're now we're we're doing we're taking all these different sizings, all these different lines, and yet it's finding strategies that apparently, especially according to the variance reduction technique, beat all the humans. I mean, how how does a human respond to this and this is a leading question because we skipped over one of the most important things that you said it doesn't simplify so uh, maybe i'm asking a lot here but what do you do as a human against this sort of thing
2: i mean i think you die right <laughs> but like you know i mean i think the the entire the proof is in the pudding with Libratus is that it, it beat all the humans right badly
0: yes.
2: yeah and, you know it's like and then what have we been doing in the meantime we've just been studying to get closer to it Right? Like, I think, uh, you know, if Pluribus keeps playing itself, it keeps getting better. uh, Yeah, I think it'll just be the holy grail of poker, and that's what we should be uh, kind of veering toward. And then again, developing strategies once everyone, quote unquote, knows what optimal is that are not suboptimal in themselves dramatically, right? So, like, you know, a lot of people are willing to take 1.5% uh losses to play uh to employ whatever kind of simplification technique there's other spots where you can probably take 1.5 percent losses uh involving like leading or you know having like different kind of bet sizing that's still going to be able to manipulate your opponents into parts of the trees and, and into bet sizing strategies that they're unfamiliar with right so i think a lot of it is and this is something that i work on in my game is that once a guy seems to kind of know how to you know Play against my simplification, like pure simplifications. Then I like to do like not pure simplifications. So, for example, instead of C betting 100% on the button, I'll C bet 80% in that same spot and then understand what are the 20% of hands that Pio recommends checking back there. And then if a guy suddenly is like, wow, this guy C bets 100% of here, and then he suddenly checks back, then he's like, wait, what the fuck's going on? Right. And so, you know, if that first trial doesn't work, the second try doesn't work. If that doesn't work, then I can switch to 50 percent bets that are polarized. And then eventually one of these hammers is going to chip away at that rock. And so being able to have that very diverse tool set that goes beyond just learning the simplifications of PO is then going to be the next like the next entry to barrier once everyone kind of knows these basics right because like it's only a matter of time before players at 2.5 are betting like a quarter in position and stuff like that so
1: and do this all in 30 seconds
2: okay yeah, well but, you know if you do the study away from the board then it's pretty easy to do in real time
1: right so. for sure for sure you'll at least have some principles to guide you let's talk I actually I want to talk about the flip side of this being so difficult, because some of the players did, well, whether you agree with the sample size or the variance reduction techniques, some of the players did really well, like, I think, Eddie. Um, and another yeah. one I'm not remembering. Yeah, what Eddie, were they Mr. Doing? Blue, and Bud were all, like, really Buddy. big players. Yes, but What were they doing? I mean, aside from maybe running a little hot. I mean, it can't just be... First of all, their red lines were looked really sharp. They looked like... They were choosing the right hands to win without showdown. Comment on these guys.
2: So I think that there's going to be whatever skill. There's going to be a a rather significant skill edge between some of these players, right? Like I'm sure Linus Love versus even like the best MTT players in a cash game is going to be have a, a reckless advantage against them. Right. So when Linus is playing against some of these guys who have like, you know, a million in MTT earnings, Right, which is like you know 300k lifetime earnings or whatever, right? Like versus you know 17 million or whatever he's won online. Yeah, there's going to be a huge disparity in talent there. And so I think very often when he's playing against the human guys, there's going to be some spots where you can then simplify, right? And if you know if you're playing against guys who are not you know zoom 500 regulars and don't play against simplifications early, then they just get run over and your red line flies. Pluribus also gets run over in some spots because it probably is it like calls down a little bit more tightly than humans for better or for worse in some spots or it, it calls down using a different kind of blocker selection than we do right so
1: well i'd just like you to talk about these the ones who who did win in hands against pluribus i mean notably um i think it was bud seemed to be winning even towards the end it was a very steady rise i mean i don't i have a hard time believing i mean you can throw the math at me i have a hard time believing that that was just variance
2: yeah, um, <laughs> there were some hands where I think the compu- or the, the humans were going for, like, cuteness against the computer, which probably does not work in the long run. So, for example, I saw a guy like Min bet the nuts into Pluribus on, like, the river. Or, like, Min lead the nuts after he, like, got there, and then Pluribus, you know, puts in a big raise, and then he comes over the top. You know, how good is that in, in real life? How good is that, you know, against uh, uh, a player that you see a couple times in a row? I, I don't really know. Is that also a spot where they just ran into a hand that Pluribus is, should, you know, bluff raise if your opponent
1: leads, you know what I mean? You know, shouldn't, I mean, not, I, I would almost not discount that. Shouldn't that be part of your strategy if you're if you're oh, having yeah, some yeah. sort of block oh, yeah. Hitting?
2: Oh, sure, e- exactly. But like, I mean, that's a spot where when you don't, you have the nuts and your opponent has a hand that you definitely should be raising you, then that looks super good when you when you accomplish that, right? But <laughs> then there's going to be a lot of times where you just min-bet, and then Pluribus just, like, flats you with, like, 89% of hands and never raises you or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And then you just miss insane value, right? So, like, outside of that sample size, then you can't tell all those times where he just, like, you know, flaps you with a set and he's just like, whatever, got you, right? Because, you know, Pluribus is capable of obviously making some rather supernatural calls or, you know, or folds,
1: so. That's true. Maybe the the human team uh, did get cute. What, what were they doing on the whole that was right, if you were able to? observe anything like that
2: yeah so um i mean (laughs) a lot of the things that i thought the humans were doing right were when they were consciously or not imitating pluribus so when people were flatting i think that their their flatting ranges were really good and were very conducive to low rake games and were really punishing the players who didn't necessarily realize that they were getting flatted with such strong hands and with such good coverage, right? So I think some of like the weaker humans were just betting too often into strong players and strong ranges and not realizing that they had to be much, much, much tighter. There's going to be even spots where I think like middle position versus button, I would say on, let's say, King 7-2, you probably should only be betting 20 to 25% of the time. Well, and that looks like a pretty safe board to just bet, right? Because you don't think, oh, there shouldn't be that much coordination, right? King X boards are so much better, right? But, like, yeah, it's actually surprisingly difficult when your opponent has even 6% of Ace King in his flatting range and then whatever other flats that that implies, right? So, um, So I thought that was really good. There was a lot of kind of, like... This mixed bet sizing and overbet sizing and then underbet overbet sizing on future streets, right? So after people checked back the flop or after Pluribus checked back the flop, people like overbetting the turn, underbetting the turn, then overbetting the river, over betting the turn and then normal betting the river so like people had a lot of different and uh like interesting bet sizes with different parts of their range uh and i assume balance that uh you know from a a human's perspective would be really really frustrating to play against and so there were a lot of times where i think humans played their range in ways that were very computer like right um Mm -hmm. i think you know we we've talked about how uh, and I think we're going to be looking at a hand later on where the computer plays its range in a very obvious way that as you, soon as you see it, you would be like, oh, yeah, he's just obviously playing his range because he has more, you know, nuts advantages here. But like in play, you definitely would not be, you know, thinking that as like a candidate line, you know, like extremely obviously. Right? So, but, the, you know, but I think that Pluribus never misses those spots right like where it turns hands into bluffs where it runs like bluffs with unintuitive blockers right that humans maybe have a little bit too much fear to execute or just maybe not enough theoretical background um, there's a super high stakes crusher i think his name is sterling cold that's invoker right so invoker is like a super super strong player i think he plays like you know high stakes stars high stakes global and just you know takes on all comers And he uses a lot of these same techniques that we saw in the pluribus match, right? Like after people check back after people have polarized their range and then their EV is on like, you know, is less than yours. And you can just start piling these giant, giant bets, you know, 200, 300% on the turn in the river and then, you know, shoving on the river. And I think that those um, with balance uh, is just basically unbeatable, right? If you're a player who's a little too passive, a little too scared, and you run up against people who can just play balanced bluffing ranges and have all-in ranges, you just die, right? Like, either you call poorly and you just get stacked a lot, or you just overfold way, way, way too much. It's very, very rarely um, anywhere in between, right, until you get to very good players. And so that's, I think that's basically what Pluribus always has an advantage on over every human, is that it's just going to always just keep putting you in these, like, ridiculously gross, gross spots. And if, you know, like, even in this... Sample size, like a lot of the times where Pluribus runs these big bluffs, it only is getting snapped off by like full houses and trips and like really, really strong hands. Right. And so you can see like when it runs these big bluffs, humans are getting out of the way as well. I mean, as they should. Right. But like Pluribus, like it has the capability of running these people really, really the F over. But, you know, I think in this sample, it definitely, you know, it runs into the top of people's ranges a couple of times.
1: Right. And you, in fact, sent me a hand. Just before this, we're demonstrating this, where if some fellow opens a weak hand, doesn't continue on an advantage card, and then Pluribus just piles the river, and sure. he has to fold. Oh,
2: okay. So this is something that uh, I think is maybe not unique to Pluribus, but is, is somewhat uncommon, which actually contributes very greatly to Pluribus's red line being so poor. Is that so for example, let's say it's running a bluff and it has six K has six thousand dollars behind into a four K pot, right? In that spot, it'll often bet five thousand dollars and leave a thousand behind, or even bet fifty two hundred and leave eight hundred behind and then fold to the shove. And so that's just the worst thing for the red line ever, right? It's just like it's like losing like <laughs> nine it's like losing like ninety big blinds, but that's not a spot that humans ever lose ninety big blinds, because instead of going for the Whatever you know, 125 percent pot bet we just shove, right? Because we're like, oh, that's not—it's only ten big blinds difference. It doesn't really matter. But Pluribus again, you know, through its Sauron eye, says, oh, maybe I should save a little bit money with my bluffs here. I don't know. What, I mean, obviously, it doesn't do it that <laughs> that that uh, discreetly, right? But it's it's sizing in a way that humans don't do that may, might save some money on bluffs. I don't really know if that's the case. So,
1: well, isn't it isn't it just making the calculation? that this is this is going to work the right amount of time so that last a thousand really doesn't matter.
2: Yeah, it definitely might just be like, oh if I put an X amount he can't make the defense, the minimum defense in this spot so that anything yeah. else is super superfluous, right? Like that might that definitely might be the case, right?
1: Right. Uh, so like often in human strategy, we just like after the sort of post flop SPR, if we're allowed to say that reaches one, we have a lot of trouble. But I've observed these machines having no and these high stakes crushers having no problems playing with these SPR one pots or or making yeah, yeah. very strange plays.
2: And it's really strange because they'll play these like SPR like one or one and a half pots and then it just becomes limit hold them. Yeah. Like? It's like, okay, I bet an eighth of the pot, and you then you call because you have whatever odds, right? Like, you know, we see whatever kind of call down that Linus makes against Henrik Hecklin with like King High and an ace high pot, because he's like, Oh, it's just limit poker, so I should just call down here. And it's like, oh, oh so strong.
1: <laughs> and that and that's just these very high stakes players, and obviously the computer being good at the math of the game, which most of us just oh, well, we just can't do even if we are good at the math. I mean but, it's
2: well, just it, hard. It, well, I think it's also uh, a symptom of when people first get into the pio solver analysis, simply going through single raised pots uh, from common formations is so exhausting that people definitely have not spent the same kind of detailed analysis in 3-bet and 4-bet pots or, like, in awkward size pots, like squeeze pots or whatever. And so because of that, like, I'll just admit, like, my students, I feel like, are extremely lacking in these spots because, you know, they spent a million hours analyzing how to barrel the turn correctly in and out of position. And, you know, that is extremely, extremely important, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, right, like, yeah, you got to be able to understand, oh, when can I bet a quarter and bet a third standardly? based on the SPR and based on, on whatever kind of advantages I have. Right. And so,
1: right. So maybe that's, um, we've, we've grilled you quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe that's, we'll just take a break from Pluribus because it's a nice segue into what else you're doing. You're. Coaching. Although
2: we have, we have one hand that we want to look at, right? Do you want to okay,
1: look Okay. L- 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 let's look. Well, yeah, go ahead. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what you're okay. doing also. So, uh, so Mr. Blue, who
2: I think is one of the stronger players opens in the hijack Uh, to 2.25 with 3-4 suited, which is loose. Uh, I think this is going to be a slightly losing play, according to GTO at least. Um, This might be like a play that he only does like whatever, like a quarter or an eighth of the time, so that might be fine. But generally, this should just be a fold. I think, you know, Pluribus even folds pocket deuces half the time from the cutoff. Which I was like, whoa, I was like, wow, the tightness. So 3-4 suited is definitely going to be one of those hands that, from a GTO perspective, Mr. Blue probably should just be folding, but, you know, whatever. Pluribus, uh, then three bets to slightly less than 3x from the small blind. So, you know, uh, Mr. Blue makes it 225 and then Pluribus makes it 706, which is gonna be an uncommon sizing here. I think the standard for Pluribus is closer to 900, even though it also goes up to 1,000 and 1,200 here. But so this is one of those examples where it's slightly deviating from whatever its standard size is and just, you know, sizing down a little bit. And uh, I, you know, again, I don't know what its, its range is here. And then Mr. White cold Uh, cold calls in the big blind with pocket eights, which seems to be pretty standard. And then now, given the fact that there is an overcaller, and because he initially raised so small, and then pluribus three-bet so small, Mr. Blue has the obvious, obvious snap call with four-three suited, especially because it's so unlikely that anyone else is going to have a four and a three, so he's just going to have really clean coverage there. So, goes three-way to the flop, and the board comes king, seven-two, which theoretically should be the best board for Pluribus, but because he is out of position to two players who potentially Mr. White can have a very like uncapped range, like I mean, he should not have aces and kings that often, but he can have he can he can have that with like some minority of the time thinking Mr. Blue might come over the top. Yeah, hard to tell he can also definitely have ace king here uh with a non-sub-zero amount of the time so pluribus actually should be checking the majority of his range out of position to two players here despite having more combinations of ace king and probably kings than both guys so in gto multi-way pots minimum defense frequency is distributed between multiple players and so if pluribus bets whatever amount uh, you know, the minimum defense needs to be made by both Mr. White and Mr. Blue. And so, like, if Floribus bet's, like, a third of the pot here, like, that means he's still going to actually get called 70% of the time between the two players. And so it has to look at his hand and say, uh, what kind of hands stand getting called 70% of the time against these opponents', like, pretty strong cold calling ranges, even though Mr. White's range should obviously be much stronger than Mr. Blue's. And so, like, he could probably just, you know... Should probably check aces a bunch here, especially because aces is going to have blocker effects on ace king, which is going to be like the most likely triple barrel calling candidate from Mr. Y. And so, like, if he's checking aces, if he's like checking ace king, you know, like, and obviously you don't want to try to put in a lot of money with like queens and stuff. It's probably going to be a very minority bet on this board, despite having those advantages.
1: Does that makes sense. Yeah, and also this, while we I brought up this <laughs> hand, I, I misread the action, so. Definitely, it's good that we're going over this. Yeah. Um,
2: also, like, it's, it's a little harder to evaluate this hand because Pluribus made it this awkward size, right? So, like, it kind of means that Mr. White, I guess he should have a little bit more ace-king than usual, right? Because if if Pluribus made it a larger size than Mr. White, is more incentivized to cold format, right? So, like, I guess Mr. White should have a little bit more ace-king here, right? And I, I guess I can't really comment on how many ace-king Mr. Blue should have here, right? Like, it's kind of hard, hard to tell. Uh, again, because of the sizing. But so, um, Florbus checks, Mr. White checks, and then Mr. Blue bets 800 in position.
1: Right, so he's saying he he does flat. He's sort of implying that he does flat the ace-king with this bet.
2: Yeah, I guess if he only has a range that has, like, king, queen, and below. I mean, I assume that after Mr. White flats there, Mr. Blue has to have some kind of ace-king there, right? Like, four-betting there is... It's pretty scary, especially after that. you after you opened in the hijack. Also, I don't know if Pluribus is... What is pluribus's smaller three-bedding range? Is it, like, really value-heavy and trappy? Right? Like, the only hands I've seen it do it with are, like, king, queen, suited, and eights made so far, right? Like, those are weird hands to kind of evaluate what it's doing in a strategy, because those are those weird, like, I kind of want to make the pot a little bit bigger kind of hands, you know what I mean? Like, the fish <laughs> exactly. strategy of, like, I have ace, queen, I want to make the pot, like... Some weird, weird SPR, right? So, again, right, like, uh, kind of grain of salt here of what Mr. Blue should be betting. But, again, yeah, probably should have a little ace king, some king-queen here. But when he bets 800, yeah, it's a little bit more than a third. It seems kind of large to me on a board where he probably should have, like, clear disadvantages on. I mean, I guess he can have pocket deuces and pocket sevens there. But pocket deuces even should check. Uh, de- pocket deuces should definitely check back the flop some percentage of the time. Uh, king and seven four because mr white and pluribus can both have those hands and their ranges also both should be so very narrow so at the same time then mr blue's also he's at a part of his range where he probably should not even be opening a pre-flop so that mm-hmm. that, that probably is, right like means that he's super incentivized it on the flop especially because if he's flatting three four suited if he doesn't hit trip threes or fours having the two of hearts on the board seems to be the best board for him to fire off that
1: right so it's, like uh, yeah
2: yeah, so yeah, definitely I can understand where, like, in a hand to hand perspective, Mr. Blue wants to bet small here, give the opponents a little bit of breathing room where he can set up kind of triple barrel if the board, like, airs in his direction. Right? So. Yes. So, Pluribus Flats, and uh, <laughs> this is, I mean, like, again, hard to evaluate because I don't know what Pluribus is hand is here but this is a pretty scary flat i think that a lot of the times this is not a terrible check fold and there's definitely spots where i think humans are just i have like open folded like pocket tens and something like a similar spot here which i don't think is terrible but again you know if it says you know the minimum defense frequency has to be broken up into whatever and it says hey i'm in the top 35 percent of my calling range here if eights is that you know, if it if qualifies that we're not even in the top 35, it has to be even, it has to be less because there's a player left to act, right? So it's probably like top 20 or 25% of his range after he checks. Yeah. This, this might, this might be fine then. So, and then definitely, I think Mr. White uh, should fold here. I definitely think that he cannot overcall, uh, right. Like I think that in Mr. White's shoes, the option is mostly going to be raising or folding. If he wants to continue with like some kind of weird hand, like a seven or a two. Because right, like I
1: don't think he can just like call. Well, isn't he saying when he makes the original overcall that he does have queens, ace, king? I mean, I would almost maybe it's a little fancy, but you said the humans were getting fancy. I would I would think that this might be an opportunity for him. Or, or that that which player that Mr. White can kind of go crazy. That, that Mr. White, uh, given that is in the smaller raising size given that Mr. Blue oh, only true. flatted, that if he wants to take advantage and sort of leverage the multi-way situation, which is the theme of, of this sure. of the whole thing, he might be able to find a play here um, if so he can I, continue. I,
2: I think that he definitely should have a raising range here right? Like, uh, uh, but I th- especially after Mr. Blue bets because he's the guy who's like I think that you should be a little most suspicious about here. But I think that if he was going to be having a range, like, so, in theory, the range that he should be raising here is going to be the hands that have not enough showdown value to want to, like, call here, and then want to then turn itself into a bluff. Uh, and so I think then the ones that you're going to want to pick are going to be the ones that have the best blocker properties, which, in my opinion, are going to be ace-queen predominantly. Right. Like, Yeah, so, like, ace-queen of green, red, and black all seem to be pretty good. Or, yeah, I mean, ace-queen of blue is probably fine against the sizing as well, but... Or, or maybe like Queen uh, I guess you can't even have that hand uh, I guess you can have ace Jack suited some yeah that actually doesn't seem terrible some percentage of the time I mean and can so you have a hand, hand,
1: hand like Queen Jack suited Queen Jack of spades and choose to see the next card
2: I mean it might be a minority hand here
1: so. right what, what I'm saying is they're all playing range, they're all playing their ranges and and so when they make these minority actions they end up and they, and they end up getting outrageously good prices to try to play for, for turns and rivers sure. which is what pluribus does obviously eights is not a good hand here and the blockers are all wrong so i of course it's just a full yeah so
2: for this hand obviously you got to fold.
1: it. Yeah. yeah i'm just i'm just wondering in this exact formation given price whether mr white is is his strategy is just going to be a little bit too conservative
2: i'm interested in seeing what pluribus would do in mr white's shoes with jacks if it exactly. actually if it ever would turn into a bluff that's what I'm kind of curious about. Yeah, yeah. I'm... There's been spots where I've seen it turn into bluffs with hands that I think that for reasonable showdown value, right? And so I'm just like, oh, this is probably a spot where the computer just is just a little bit sharper on where that exact line is between calling and raising, so. Right. So Pluribus flats eights, Mr. White folds, and the turn is an ace. So this is actually going to be a really, really good card for Pluribus' check calling range because he, again, should still have ace king. He definitely should have aces on the flop. And, like, I'm trying to think of, like, what other kind of, like, random hands he he should have. But the majority of them should be, like, aces. Like, I mean, like, kings seems to be an obvious check call on the flop as well. So, like, he should just basically have everything here and be protected. And, like, that's kind of the more important thing is that you just have to assume on boards that Pluribus has the pre-flop nuts advantage on. Even when he gives you the betting lead, he's still going to be very or it's going to be very uh, balanced against you here. So I think, even despite improving on the turn and this being like, you know, a pretty good candidate to kind of want to barrel off on, especially because Mister Blue should have some, you know, like some aces here that he could fire off. But I think that it is more more prudent to check.
1: Yeah. So I guess my my question on this card. It's a very interesting card because if Mister Blue, who is the opener, has ace king bet the flop, and Pluribus opened to his small sizing. You know, and that was demonstrably with king-queen suited and now eights. Uh, Shouldn't Mr. Blue... Want to be betting? Doesn't he actually have the advantage? Of, even though you say Floribus should have kings and aces, just going back to that the purely yeah, so, information of the. So of it's the small it's size. kind of
2: hard because again it's that sample size where I mean I have to assume that in all of its three betting ranges there is some combinations of aces kings and ace
1: king. I see. Okay.
2: Right. Yeah. Just from the GTO perspective, it's just it's always just going to include some of the nuts in to protect all of the ranges, right? And so for me the question is: Is eights the mine? Is like the majority of that range composed of a ton of like really strong value hands or like like really strong value hands and then it just wants to give you a cheap price and then blow you out on the flop or is it that it's the majority of these mediocre hands like eights through tens and king queen that wants to get thin value and then it's protected by having a small combination of the nuts right i can't tell which one of those it is and and both of them sound kind of reasonable to me (laughs) right so
1: yeah it's pretty it's pretty hard for the humans if, if we have to assume that all all these sizings are protected by the nuts. I think we have to take advantage a little bit of these, of the pre-flop information. Uh, that would seem reasonable to me, but Mr. Blue decides not to fire here, doesn't he?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that in just in general, you know, in these kind of like three bet pots on the ace, ace and king boards as the, as the pre-flop defender, the majority of your range should just be checking when you have the option here, right? Like, I think that I don't have this model in front of me because, you know, I don't have the Mr. White modeled in here. But um, I think that if you just modeled the turn to include just Pluribus and Mr. Blue here and it checks to Mr. Blue, I assume that he'd be checking back like 75 to 80 percent of the time.
1: OK, so what happens here?
2: But again, uh, also, you know, hmm, hard to tell that evaluation because Mr. Blue's on three, four. So, you
1: know, what other <laughs> hands is he here? Well, he he does pick up equity, actually. His plan had to be to barrel. He saw the deuce of hearts. He sees the king. He sees the small sizing. Anyway, I don't like his decision here.
2: Yeah, so like, when you have, generally when you have these kind of double back doors, you should almost never continue to fire unless you turn equity, right? But here I think the, the thing is, in theory, Mr. Blue should be checking back some of his clean gut shots to avoid getting check raised, and particularly on an ace-king flop, I think the likelihood that he's going to get blown off of his equity or at least continued against is very, very high. So I, I think see. that if he's going to pick a hand that he should turn into a bluff that has some kind of, like, gut shot equity, it's going to rather be queen-jack or queen Ten, yeah, qu- queen which ten, is more ten, yeah. Like, yeah, right, to really target my opponent's you know, like ace queen kind of type hands. So I think, yeah. So in theory he should be having some kind of uh, flop. I'm sorry, like turn checkbacks with cut shots. And it seems to make more sense that the lower hands are going to be the candidates to check back because they have the worst blocker properties.
1: Yeah. His blockers are are crap here and queen 10 would certainly be better.
2: I like Mr. Blue's check here on the
1: turn actually. Okay. Fair enough.
2: Uh, And then, so then the river is the three of clubs and with a $3,700 pot, Pluribus then bets 5500 so that's like a $1.7, something like that.
1: Okay. Right. So now we see one of these, these raises that we talked about earlier where he leaves himself a little bit behind.
2: Yeah, so after he bets here, he's got... 29, 17 behind. So, I mean, that's actually, I mean, he's leaving 29 big blinds behind, so not nearly as drastic as, like, putting in 90 big blinds and folding here, right? But so, this is a spot where, with 8s, after your opponent checks back, like, so, for one, you definitely can have a protected checking range here that has, like, King X and Ace X here. So, you know, like, this is a spot where you can just check 8s and be like, yo, if this guy fires at me, I can pretty confidently fold because, one, I understand that I'm very protected, and two, I'm just, like, so far in my range and I don't have good blockers, right? And I think all of that would make sense in the moment. But Pluribus is just like, no, fuck everything, right? Like, my hand has no value against Mr. Blue's perceived, like, continuing range here, right? So I'm just going to go just go ahead and put in the bombs, right? So I'm assuming that Pluribus is just saying, you know, Mr. Blue sometime can have some 7x hands that are going to be checking back, but... After he checks back the turn, I think it's actually much more likely that Mr. Blue has kind of some kind of like Ace Jack or Ace Ten type hand, to maybe bet in position because I think like Ace Jack or Ace Ten wants to bet uh, in Mr. Blue's shoes on the flop to mm-hmm. just kind of clear everyone out. That seems to be reasonable. Also with two blockers, right? So like I think when he checks back the Ace Turn, he's got actually quite a bit, uh, you know, quite a bunch of like uh, like weaker aces, I guess. And so like out of Florbis's entire range here. Right, if he thinks that Mr. Blue's got like this condensed range of aces, then his natural bet sizing should be to overbet here because he has the right, like the the I guess polarization advantage here. So, right. I, so I really I, I love this bet here. Right, like I again, this is a spot that I don't think I necessarily would make in my own play, but it looks I think it looks amazing on 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 paper. So,
1: right. And so the human employing this, learning this strategy, seeing that Mr. Blue is representing check back showdown value. We have to put that capped range to the test here. Sure. Okay.
2: And it's interesting because, like, you know, do pocket 8s have blocking properties to Ace-8 here? That's uh, kind of hard to tell. <laughs> like,
1: That's the, pretty know, thin. Like,
2: yeah, does that really, you know, does, does Pluribus consider that in Mr. Blue's range here? Right? Like, I mean, you do block three of the combinations of Ace-8 suited on the board, but... The fact that it turns this hand into a bluff here, I don't know, trying to get your opponent off 9s or 10s, right? Like Or King X, that actually makes a lot of sense. Seems to be, yeah, really, really good.
1: Do you think that Mr. Blue would bet any of those hands on the flop? I mean, he can bet King X, for sure. Right, but but pocket 10s, I mean, maybe.
2: Uh, oh, for that sizing, I think pocket 10s and pocket 9s can bet that flop.
1: Yeah, okay. fair enough. Okay, so Pluribus... Has the best hand? It doesn't know that, and uh, but is probably trying to shut out uh, a weak ace or king. Is what you're saying here?
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think you know if you look at any ace that gets that calls here is going to be losing, right? Like if you call with like ace jack or like ace ten against whatever this balance range is, you know, it's just just, just going to eat shit a lot. <laughs> so right, like you know, yeah. So I I really like this the sizing. If I was a human. Right, playing as another human, I, I would love to put people in, in into tests in this spot from now
1: on. So Very nice. Uh, more hands, more comments, or should we move on? I think we had another hand that was... Here we go. Okay. Uh, yes, we have a hand 106220. We have the whole cards for Pluribus being the Jack of Clubs and Queen of Hearts, if you wanted to talk over that one.
2: Mr. Blue, again, opens in the cutoff to 2.25 with pocket threes, which is... Uh, a majority play, but it is a slight fold in the cutoff. I think you like fold like 5 or 10% here. I wonder if it slows down if this is actually 100% raise, but there is some frequency that pocket 3s is folded in the cutoff. And then yeah. it is defended by Queen-Jack off suit from Pluribus, which is, again, a majority play, even though Pluribus particularly likes to 3-bet with... Uh, Queen Jack Offsuit, which is kind of interesting. There's uh, a couple hands that Pluribus really, really likes and dislikes. It likes three betting Queen Jack off-suit for whatever kind of locker you know properties it has, and it really, really hates three betting Nine Eight suited in some spots. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if that's because it just looks into the future and sees it gets coolered against a lot of people's like Broadway kind of ranges when it, with a lot of straights and stuff. So I don't know what's going on there, but distinctly right. Nine Eight suited is not in favor right? And then it really likes, like, 7-6 suited, things that can cooler the wheel, right? So hands that can cooler the wheel are often very strong. So, queen-jack off suit, pretty standard defense. Pluribus checks, as it should with pretty much all of its range on this board, especially against the cutoff opener, and Mr. Blue bets 250, which is fine. So, again, because Pluribus is going to be, you know, a, a computer, there's no real reason to pick a down bet size against here, so... You know, against a human you could probably bet like one twenty five, one fifty here. I think Mr. Blue against a human or a similar player against a human might bet like one fifty here. But you know, he's just gonna put it into his polarized range here. I mean I don't really have too much to say about the flop the flop bet, do you?
1: <laughs> I just would comment that I don't think Mr. Blue is intending to, to barrel off with this hand. I mean I I yeah, I think you're reasoning on the, the pre flop action where he, he just will end up with nine eight a lot more than than Queen Jack, I think that makes perfect sense from what you said. Yeah. The the question being, what cooler is what? I would expect that that, that on six four ten, Mr. Blue would expect Pluribus to have a lot of calls um, if he goes small. I don't know who Mr. Blue is, but we've seen him now twice, and uh, this 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 points to you maybe looking at some of the players and learning what you can about yeah. them.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I yeah. You know, besides the really, really analyzed Linus Love, it's much harder to kind of guess who these guys are, right? Like, if I have to say, Mister, if I have to make a guess, I'm going to assume that Mr. Blue is either one of the, is one of the three upswing guys in this experiment.
1: Okay. Yeah. Again, right. hard to tell. Right? So. Yeah, and they, and they do a lot of this sort of sizing anyway. Um, he has, so what hands do you think Pluribus should be folding to this sizing that it would have in the big one that he didn't 3-bet?
2: I mean, he should maybe fold, like, ace-nine of hearts? Right. Or, I'm sorry, ace-nine of uh,
1: blue? Right? Yes, or, exactly. Yeah. I'm trying to stare at these colors.
2: <laughs> yeah, ace-nine of diamonds, right? You should probably fold the flop, which is gonna, this is gonna make great radio later on. Yeah, so Pluribus probably fold his, like, off-suit hands with, without two back doors. He can probably fold, like, pocket threes and pocket deuces, even though I imagine GTO actually will call that with, like, some small frequency at the time. Uh, and then he's always gonna be continuing with his, like, 4x, 6x, 10x type hands. Probably all of his queen, jack, and king queen, depending on what he did not 3 but free flop. Definitely all of the king queen that has the double back doors as well. And he's also, I expect him to check raise some combinations of 4x, particularly when the kicker is really bad, and some combinations of 10x again when the kicker is not that good. Even though from Pluribus's shoes he should not have that many, like 10x with a terrible kicker, right? Like, he should... Like, he'll have 10-8 offsuit, which can be, like, 25% check raise in the flop. And I guess he can have, like, 10-7 suited, which probably should be a check raise in the flop some percentage of the time. But, like, very often, Pluribus is going to have, like, 10-jack, 10 10-queen 10 and 10 king, which all should just be just check calls on the flop because they can improve with overcards on, and not only overcards, but overcards that your opponents likely get a barrel because it improves to their hands. So Pluribus calls. The turn is a 10, uh, okay. and then Pluribus goes ahead and donks 25. And I feel really lucky because I just did a hand where Jungleman calls like a flop raise, and on the turn, the top pair pairs, and then he leads like a quarter or a fifth. And I was like, wow, this is a really small bet. And I wonder what uh, PileSolver says about this. And not surprisingly, Jungle Man knew exactly what the hell was going on <laughs> and picked the exact. Perfect size. And so I was just like, oh, okay. So this is the preferred bet size in this situation. And I thought it was very interesting that as soon as I saw the uh, the paired board, Pluribus goes ahead and leads. And he leads with a hand that obviously has tremendous blockers against Mr. Blue here with the queen and the jack, you know, preventing all sorts of continuing uh, range. Especially because he also has the, um, the queen of hearts, right? So that's going to just, you know, put Mr. Blue into kind of a pickle. But he but also because he bets so small, Mr. Blue should also be continuing with a very large percent of his range. He should be calling with all of his gut shots. He should probably be calling with his hands that block the 10 Xs that have on value. So like ace, jack, ace, queen, ace, king are all definitely going to be uh, turn calls, especially facing this bet sizing. He needs to call with like 75%, 80% of his range, right? So he's just almost always going to be continuing with. It's actually kind of hard to think about what hands Mr. Blue bets on the flop in his polarized range that now folds on the turn, besides some of his, like, total width, ace two or ace three of spades, right? Ace three of spades, ace three of clubs, ace five of spades, ace five of clubs. Those seem to be, like, fine bets on the flop and then fold to the turn, right? So, but yeah, it should be the minority of those hands. But this also sets up something very important, is that when Mr. Blue just calls, that probably means that he does not have... Sixes, fours, you know, he shouldn't have that many 10x, which should be very happy to just go ahead and raise here and continue to inflate the size of the pot in position. Right, so... Right. Yeah, so really what this does is just sets up Mr. Blue to be very cap. So right,
1: this card, is, this card is so hard for for Mr. Blue to deal with, and, and Pluribus slash PO, it, <clears throat> we can sort of see why it does that. I think the, the listener may be amazed at the small sizing. The bet is is pretty perfect.
2: Yeah. So initially, I thought you know it would make more sense to pick a larger sizing because you know at the moment I say this it sounds dumb because I guess you don't want to pick a larger sizing because you know when you have trips you block your opponent from having trips. So what can he call you with, right? So you want to pick a lot smaller, a smaller bet sizing in general so that when you actually do have trips, he's gonna pay you off.
1: Yeah, right. Sometimes. I'm just. I guess what I'm saying is like what the difference between the quarter pot bet and what might be a rather normal third pot bet. Might, might surprise people. Um,
2: oh, sure. Yeah, I definitely was surprised at how consistently Pio preferred mm. using this very, very small sizing when the board was paired on the turn, with, without the betting lead. Right? So, yeah, yeah.
1: Which, which is why also, as Elvin has explained, if Mr. Blue has sixes or fours, he really, he really benefits from raising um, because there's no money going into the damn pot, um, for one thing. Mm. And now when he just calls... He really ruins the EV of his of his nut hands. So it's going to... I don't know what happens on the river here, but I'm going to guess Mr. Blue's in trouble.
2: The river's a three, which gives Mr. Blue bottom <laughs> <Okay>. full house. <laughs> and so oh. into, out of a 15 This is $1... how we beat
1: the computers. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And so this is also why you see the the red line tanking, right? So in theory, now Pluribus... Well, well let, let's go over the action first. So now on the river... Uh, Pluribus bets 3,000 into 1,500 after it after all of the draws brick off, and the river comes a three, which should be really innocuous and also should be somewhat discounted from like Miss you know from Mr. Blue's range at this point. Ah. yeah, I mean, I guess some of them like check the flop back, and some of them might not raise free flop, although I guess the human's always going to be raising this here. But for the most part, we're not really thinking about what the threes do. We're thinking about how many tens Mr. Blue has uh, in his range by the river. And when Pluribus has Queens, I'm sorry, Queen-Jack, which blocks the combinations of tens which Mr. Blue is going to be calling on the turn, because I assume he's slightly more likely to raise Ace-10 and King-10 than he's going to be with Queen-10 and Jack-10, because if he's going to be picking some kind of slow play range, he's going to be picking the lower blocker candidates than the higher blocker candidates. And so this is the super, super nuts blocker hand to put an overbet with. And I love what Pluribus does here. And it just goes ahead and puts the overbet, which does not work because, you know, Mr. Blue has now rivered bottom boat.
1: Right. So my question to you would be, let's imagine the scenario where Mr. Blue also had Queen Jack off, which would make for a fine flop C bet. Yep. on the 10 when he has the blockers to the 10 and he sees this small bet can Mr blue win this pot with a with a raise over the lead
2: yeah he can definitely raise. this is a, I mean I think that if Mr blue had pluribu's hand in this scenario then he has the optimal hand to go ahead and raise the flop because you know when he has the queen and the jack then he is blocking a lot of the hands from Pluribus's like passive pre-flop and flop ranges right so like if Pluribus has Ace-10, slightly more likely to raise the flop or three-bet pre-flop. Even though, actually, to be honest, I don't know if Ace-10 actually ever raises the flop. It might just always call. But yeah, like he he would have like a really really juicy candidate to go ahead and turn into a bluff against a lead here. Also, he should be leading some. I'm sorry, he should be raising some hands for value that are worse than a 10. So, for example, raising with jacks or queens is probably not terrible, especially because you block some combinations of trips then. right? So when you do get called, you are going to be ahead. Also, I'm pretty sure that ace-6 is a raise on the turn. Maybe maybe ace-4? No, I kind of have to think about that harder. I'm pretty sure ace-6 is going to be also a turn raise there. And so you do actually get pretty good value against a lot of a balanced leading range. You know, obviously, if you run into an opponent who's only just, like, overbet leading with trips, then you shouldn't be raising any of those hands, right? But, oh yeah, in theory, I do think that Queen-Jack on the turn is a very good raise, yeah.
1: Okay, and then final question. If Mr. Blue and Pluribus switch spots and Pluribus has threes, uh, did he, would he have played this very similarly?
2: Um, He would have flatted pre-flop. Would he have check-called the flop? Yep. I mean, yeah, I guess against the smaller sizing, you'd check on the flop. Especially because the three then has... Like, twos and threes are of similar strength, but threes is actually probably much stronger because of the double backdoors. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I think threes is uh, pretty reasonable because you have w- at least one backdoor here.
1: Is that part of the explanation as to why <laughs> Pluribus and some other strategies don't like pocket twos, is that they won't have as many of uh, these opportunities to float?
2: Yeah, I wonder if it's just, yeah, because you can't, you can't even hit, like, runner-runner wheels that often, right? Like, as pocket twos as you could with, like, pocket threes hitting, like, you know the eight to three or seven to three right right yeah i think pocket threes actually would lead would would lead the turn like some fraction of the time i think that's probably not terrible also like you know when it has these kind of like low pairs it does like to do everything like a little bit of the time because it has actual outs to a full house on the river which it equates to the nuts right so anytime you have effective nuts that you know effective outs to the nuts it does play it does put it a little bit in its range from a gto perspective i think
1: yeah, we're a little conservative, aren't we, as humans, when we don't consider the, our two outers.
2: <laughs> oh, I'm <Which> is, not. <laughs> oh, you're not? Okay. Oh, no, man, my two outers are golden. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because two outers are often also, well, actually, no, two outers are not often not very good triple barrels because they have a little bit of showdown value. But yeah, no, two outers are better triple barrels or double barrels, do you think?
1: <laughs> All right. So I think we've put uh, Alvin through the ringer on Pluribus. Let's, I am uh, literally
2: sweating right now, people.
1: well a lot of us are looking at this tell us how you've been doing with uh your own coaching practice with overnight monster what's happened in the six months since we've talked
2: so originally i started my like i had like a dinky little youtube channel with like 200 subs i had just finished creating this cash game course about pile solver simplifications and kind of you know, the introduction to like pile solver analysis and what it takes to make it to like 510. And one day I started posting some high stakes pile solver analysis videos. Things kind of took off on my channel. And uh, the same day I gained like 100 subscribers, which is pretty crazy because I only had like 250. By the end of the month, I had a 1000 subscribers. And now going into the month after I'm looking at almost 2000 subscribers. And so it seems to be a a pretty uh, fast pace of growth, which is actually really surprising because content creation is definitely not the direction I thought I was going to be going. At the same time, because the YouTube channel has been kind of blowing up, I've been getting a lot of shine on the uh, cash game course, and so more people have been signing up. And the first reviews have actually been really, really fantastic. And so a bunch of players who signed up and they're playing like 1-2 and 2-5 are now playing like five ten and ten twenty. And I released this, like, m- in March. <laughs> so I actually really underestimated how fast some of these guys would fly up the stakes. And so now I'm actually going to start developing the second product uh, in my, I guess, little poker school. I don't know what it's going to be called. It's going to be monster-related, I guess. Um, <laughs> You're stuck with it, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's going to be specifically strategies designed... For low rake scenarios, so you know, in these time games and these higher stakes games, in like two five zoom and above, and like some, you know, some of my uh, students are now playing a little bit of five ten online and ten twenty online, which is crazy. Most guys are yeah. terrifying. But because of that, like you know, they need to be very updated on how to be playing like the up to date flatting strategies from every position, right? Like they need to know how to be playing in three bet pots when you are not playing purely linear ranges that I've recommended for high rate games before right so these ranges and uh strategies are actually very significant and they're very different you know for example when you are playing uh gto ranges in like four bet pots in some kind of spots you should be having an out of position leading range right like as the four bet caller as the three bet caller there's some spots where you should have an out of position leading range which i don't think people really kind of understand where those spots are right and like so i kind of want to explore those in a little bit more detail because i think those um, you know, a lot of those esoteric low, race spot, low rake spots have not been researched nearly as in-depth as, you know, a lot of the higher rake spots, a lot of the kind of the beginner spots that people are now getting into with Pile Solver. And so, you know, despite six months of poker technology um, and education having come and gone and players, you know, getting better and more nuanced at GTO... It still seems like there's just a huge world of difference between the people who are still looking at how to play like flop and turn strategies in single raise pots and the people who are now looking at like, you know, how to check raise the river in three bed pots, right? How to lead flops in four bet pots like these kind of spots like they're kind of esoteric but like they add tremendous amounts to your win rate because every time they come up your opponent just dies horribly right because you know as we talked about earlier you're leading your opponents into these like neutral ev territories where they don't really know where the the lines are between you know their calls or folds and their raises and so once you kind of drag these people into those areas they just die Especially because in 3-bet and 4-bet pots, play is so blocker-sensitive, right? Because ranges are so narrow, right? So, like, having ace-queen on a king-high board is, like, the nuts very often because you block
1: everything. I'm assuming when you're talking about these games, I, I, this is a leading question, really. You're talking about rather deeper games, including the kind we'll see on Live at the Bike or some other stream, right?
2: Sure. Or even, like, 100 big blind games at, Zoom, at like, Zoom 500. Right. Like, oh, okay. or like, yeah, like, or even 510 Global actually might, the right structure might not be that as conducive to this. But yeah, like, you know, incorporating the the pluribus strategies and, you know, the same strategies that the super elite players are going to be using and, ha- in the, you know, being able to play pots in position and really understanding how to leverage that positional advantage when you do have this condensed but slightly uncapped range is just a, is like, Even just as I'm saying it, I can realize a lot of people have no idea how to play that, right? For sure. Playing a condensed, uncapped range as the preflop caller, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's just not, it's just not that common. And so this is also why, like, you know, when you play against these killers, that's why they kill you. They know all of these things. They've been studying them. They've been using them. Their rake structures have allowed them to use them for years, and you are just learning them now. Right. And so, and, and so that's also something that's really cool about Pluribus is that watching these killers play, you can tell, oh, man, these guys, some of these guys put in the research, right? Because they must have because they are playing like the machines themselves. So.
1: Yeah, and I guess I wanted to say we don't see, except at the very highest levels, a lot of these leads and re-raised pots because the traditional human logic as to who has range advantage generally just, just favors the, the aggressor. But if you go on to live at the bike, you're going to confuse some people if you start doing this stuff.
2: Although the lead. OK, <laughs> uh, how to phrase this, not giving away too much. The lead, <laughs> uh, the requirements for the lead involve conclusions in both your preflop and your opponent's preflop range. So there's going to be opponents you cannot lead against on the same board. Right, like I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, I feel like kind of dumb saying that, like, oh, it depends on the board and the t- and the ranges. That's like how Daniel Daniel Negreanu says at the table, everything gives away information, right? Like that doesn't help. But, thank you, Alvin. Yes, thank you. <laughs> but uh, but you need yeah, you need to have like the you know a specific setup of ranges and positions in order for the lead to be effective,
1: right? Right. So, it sounds like it, you're hinting at some formations work and thinking about how positional ranges change, but it sounds also, like.
2: But also, the ranges also require there to be a low rake structure, otherwise these, some of these formations will actually never even exist. So like so there's spots where I even imagine a player like Linus if he's playing at 200 no limit versus two thousand no limit would actually take a different line there because the ranges would have been influenced so much by the structure
1: so. that's that's interesting this this high sensitivity to rake it's not the first time you've talked about this.
2: No, no, and like it's really it was very validating to look at the like the, the differences in how you should be playing with, like, like low rake versus no rake is, is night and day, right? It's like the difference between 3-betting 11% and then flatting 11% in the same spot. It's also probably uh, equally representative of how much you should be adjusting your games when the rake is extremely high.
1: Okay, well, you have certainly given us a lot to think about today. I uh, want to give you the opportunity to comment on anything else you'd like but I think we've reached our, our end point.
2: Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's about it. Uh my YouTube is Alvin Teaches Poker, my
1: website's overnightmonster.com. All right. Well, thanks to Alvin and thanks to everyone listening. I uh, will sign off for the zoo. Talk to you later.
0: And thank you for tuning in once again to the Poker Zoo. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or your own favorite podcast aggregator. Leave us a rating and review if you are so inclined, especially if it's a good one. At persuadio.nl, there's a comment section beneath each of the podcast episodes. Uh, Leave us a comment. Ask any questions about the show. Uh, You can also call the zoo hotline, 410-775-6224. Your feedback is always welcome. See you next time.